As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. When you hear the DJ scratch, you know what it means. That means it is time for another episode of the show we all love known as Thirsty Thursday. Welcome aboard the Soul Train for the next hour or so. We are going to be bringing you the hottest news Matt of the green industry. Matt, huh? This is burn and return. What did I say? You said thirsty Thursday. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> did I really? <laughs> yeah, I think you did. That is, I think you did. that is a major weird slip because I did. <laughs> I did not have thirsty Thursday on my mind. So I'm not even sure why I said that. Uh, it is, it is burn return, as a matter of fact. Uh, my name is Matt Martin, and uh, alongside of me here, we have uh, Mr. Ray Ito and uh, Ryan DeMay. Gentlemen, slug trails abound. Uh, how the hell has your weekend been? So far, it's been quiet. <laughs> and so for that, we can count our blessings because Ray did not kill a man with the trident today. Uh, <laughs> nor did he last week, nor has he ever, but... Ray and I are in the same vein that, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you just strange, stranger, stranger things have, have kind of happened there. <laughs> um, right. So I went camping, uh, this weekend and, uh, we were out at, uh, the Foshi, Foshi park campground, something or another like that little, little, uh, waterfront property off Watts bar Lake. And I'll tell you what was interesting is, is I've never seen this at a campground before. It had a uh, a warning post there that said, in the event of nuclear emergencies, follow these steps. Uh, in the event of a uh, uh, nuclear emergency, follow these steps. So apparently, there is a Watts Bar nuclear plant within 10 miles of this. And, uh, and basically, it had a list of things to do. Like number one was listen for the alarm. Uh, don't be alarmed if it's on this day at noon, which is Friday at noon, because that's just a test. And uh, number three was uh, GTFO. And uh, don't turn around kind of sort of thing. Follow evacuation routes to get out. I was like, man, that is wow. a, uh, that's a that's a pretty, pretty short list of what to do in a nuclear emergency there. Just go. Jeez. <laughs> where, yeah, where just go. go? Just, just, yeah, just, just get out. Uh, although, having said that, Matt, I can't worry about shit like that because my neighborhood is literally about five minutes from where all the nuclear subs are. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it is what it is. And I understand that probably for some sort of bizarre legal purpose, they, they have to have that listed, right? Like you mm-hmm. know, who who's going to survive that and, and, you know, be like, you know what? They didn't have appropriate, uh, they did not have appropriate signage. I was not prepared on what to do in this event, and therefore we're going to sue <laughs> on that grounds. Because pretty much yeah, everybody yeah, that's right. going to be within, yeah, within the fallout area is going to, yeah. Sorry, you're, yeah, you're yeah. probably not going to make it. Rest in peace. That is a great question there. Jay Pink said, would Jesse Bousquet take that kind of case? And, uh, and the reality is, is, I don't think there's anything Jesse Bousquet would not at least consider, um, <laughs> especially if it's if it's federal like that. Because for those of you that don't know, Jesse Bousquet is not afraid of representing the degenerates, and he's not afraid of of representing them against uh, against the feds either. Because you know why? He's a man of the people, by the people, and uh, and we need we need more men like him on the face of this planet. Uh, this is it, it, listen, this is not. 
This is not a, a paid advertisement here. We just appreciate the value that Jesse Bousquet brings to the community uh, because, you know, hey, look, I, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, I'm a good person. I'm not. And, you know, I need I need someone in my corner that could defend me in the event I need to be defended. You know what I mean? I try not to get caught. Look, I'm a horrific human being, but I do a fairly good job of not getting caught. You know what I mean? But if I did, I know where I can lean. But you know who is not a horrific human being? And that's that's why we have him on the show, Ryan. I'm glad you're here, man. <laughs> Our voice of reason. I'm glad I'm here. Our moral too, barometer. And, uh, you know, we're recording this on Mother's Day. And first of all, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there that happy listen to us. I know Mother's Day. I knew they're numerous. Uh, and they come from several different continents and everything like that. My other uh, comment on the Mother's Day piece is I hope that all of our friends that uh, have a strong affiliation to probably one of the most profound and prolific Mother's Day restaurants, the Olive Garden, right, are, are very happy and uh, can spend the day there. So, Ray, Timmy Bluegrass, if you uh, enjoyed a coconut shrimp appetizer today, glad for you. And uh, Aldo, I hope you get to go out later on tonight and uh, get your gre- grease trap cleared out. Back by the dumpsters. Uh, <laughs> Aldo, check out Fresh Fry. Fresh Fry uh, It's a it's a real quick oil filter pod that you can just drop in. Let the heat from uh, convection take care of it, and uh, that that convection will will clean that oil right out, and you'll be ready ready for round two in no time. I was describing a much more manually driven process, but okay. Uh-huh. Hey, look, yeah. the time savers here. I'm interested in helping you save time and money, especially when it comes to to, to being back in action with with coconut shrimp of all flavors. And uh, you know, time is money in that kind of regard. Everybody's grease trap has a different refractory period, so buyer beware. Some people need cabergoline. Other people can rely on fresh fry. Freshfry.me. Also, not a paid sponsor, by the way. Uh, it is. <laughs> Isn't isn't cabergoline used to decrease refractory appearance? I don't I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> Gentlemen, let's kick off the headlines. Uh, Ray, Ray was going to chime in there. Uh, yes, Matt, it is. No, <laughs> actually, no. Started. It's not for not for that. <laughs> uh, Jay Paint, we stomped all over that headline, and no one cares. That's okay. Uh, I promise you. Everyone listening right now is like, you know what? I'd probably rather hear them talk than that stupid ass intro anyway. Uh, the first article we're going to be talking about here, boys, is uh, I think this could potentially there are some, some potentially good uh, outcomes that could come from it. And this is the effect on ecosystems of reduced pesticide use. A new project led by INRS will study how living organisms respond to reduced pesticide use. Uh, pesticides affect the health of agricultural soils and waterways. But how do the living organisms in our ecosystems react if we, if we reduce the use of these contaminants? Uh, Professor Valerie Langlois. From the Institut National de la Recherche Scientifique is seeking the answer to this question. Her team just received nearly $1.3 million in funding from Fonds de Recherche de Quebec, uh, Quebec, Nature, du, uh, Nature et Technology, uh, Ministère de l'Agriculture. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I keep trying to pretend like I speak French. I can't. I think it's the um, Funds of Research of Quebec and the Minister of Agriculture, Ministry of Agriculture in Quebec. Oh, is that what that says? <laughs> Pretty much. Yes. Pretty much. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> I, uh, here. Okay. I, there was, there was like, you know, you know how sometimes you see an E and then sometimes you see an E with like a tick mark on top of it. Well, mm. not only did I see an E with a tick mark on top of it in two different words, they were going two different directions and it really overwhelmed. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I can tell you, exactly listen, sure I, how to proceed. It was like a monopoly. been a long time. I passed my French final. It was not written at all. It was all oral though. So. That's all I think I can say about that. <laughs> I'm pretty Tonight, sure you passed. Need, need Cameron Goley to pass that either. Uh, the knowledge <laughs> which up to now has been incomplete or lacking for pesticide mixtures is key to supporting and justifying the transition to sustainable, environmentally friendly farming. This is the ecotoxic genomic expert, Valerie Langlois. 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 We need to clarify. We need to clearly show that reducing pesticides has significant benefits for ecosystem, soil, and water, and limited effect on agricultural year. So, and and yeah, I'm going to stop right here. There's a lot more to this article, but I, what I think is is interesting about here is 
I love how they're starting this. And the whole start of this is that we need to clearly show that if we reduce pesticide use, we have a statistically statistically significant benefit to an ecosystem. They're not coming at this from the standpoint that, uh, um, you know, all pesticides are bad. Pesticides should not be included in any shape, form, or fashion. It's let's provide some sort of measurable benefit that if we do reduce, what does that look like? How can we quantify that? And then how can we put that into practical meanings, right? Uh, because, it, you know, it goes on to say that, you know, are, are we, if we do these types of things, uh, are we getting the types of results that, that we need? You know, are we still able to maintain yield? Are we still, um, uh, 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 uh you know, doing things that we need to do, like uh, in, inhibiting or slowing at least the development of resistance. So there's a lot of potential that I see coming out of this that is applicable across uh, a wide variety of research. Now, it's, in, it, you know, this is reduced pesticide use, and I'm sure what they're going to take into account here is going to be like, you know, pesticide use on tillage, pesticide use on no tillage, because obviously th- those are going to be wildly different uh, types of, uh, of results you see there, because with tillage, you can pretty much guarantee um, a, a massively amount of increase in uh, um, uh, runoff and erosion, right? And so I think I think I think this is important work, and that's why uh, I'm I'm actually excited this is going off, gentlemen. Is there anything about this that I'm kind of uh, glossing over here that you see that is a benefit or a negative, for that matter? It's hard to say without understanding how the experiments are going to be set up, but it sounds like they want sure. to. Do it in a controlled environment first and then take it out into the field and test, you know, what the results are right against that. So that's good to see. I think probably the most important thing here is that it's about as common sense of an approach as we've seen, right, with respect to Canada is probably one of the more progressive countries in North America, certainly, and definitely the world in terms of limiting or um, reducing overall pesticide usage, both in cropping systems, turf, like all of it, right? So it's at least... Uh, encouraging to see that they're funding research, right? They're not just going uh, full Sri Lanka and saying, well, I hope this whole organic farming thing works out. Like, they're at least saying, okay, what are the levers we need to pull? Because, Ray, as you well know, it's an input equals output type of scenario, right? So every time we change an input, the output yes. could be affected. So it ought to be right. good to find out what might happen when we do this uh, under live fire conditions. Yes, I mean, I, I like to see studies like this where objectively, hopefully objectively, all of this gets uh, teased out and laid out for everybody to see, you know, and hopefully without outside influence uh, or, uh, how shall I say, designing the study to demonstrate a desired result. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's all I can hope for. I agree a hundred percent. And that is, that is a, a fear I had that when I saw the headline, that was immediately the first thing that went through my head. And, uh, but you know, I have high hopes, but, and I, and I think this also kind of points to, uh, one of those aha moments that nobody really seems to talk about that needs to be talked about is that a lot of these restrictions on pesticide use are, uh, implemented and then you're going back behind after the fact to figure out what the repercussions are. You know, is there an environmental benefit? Is there an impact to yield? Uh, what are the long-term consequences of this good and bad kind of thing, right? So it's kind of one of those act first and then figure out what we what we effed up in the background kind of sort of thing. And I think that takes mm-hmm. us right into our next topic here, which is the Ukraine crisis reveals the folly of organic farming. Now, I want to be transparent here that this is an opinion piece from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, and this is from Bjorn Lomberg, who is a pretty interesting guy. Um, he is uh, uh, he considers himself a uh, an environmentalist, but an, an environmentalist skeptic. And uh, and so he he kind of looks at things and talks about the things that people don't like to talk about when it comes to environmentalism. And uh, and it, so particularly here, uh, you know, he highlights a lot of the the, the uh, hypocrisy that has taken place. Uh, taken place and that has caused a major, major malfunction in the global economic and food availability scale. Uh, the energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine uh, disabused many politicians 
of the notion that the world could make a swift transition to green energy power by solar, wind, and wishful thinking. As food prices skyrocket and the conflict threatens a global food crisis, we need to face another unpopular reality. Organic farming is, in effect, land-hungry and very, very expensive, and it would leave billions hungry if it were embraced worldwide. Now, for years, politicians in the chattering classes have argued that organic farming is a responsible way to feed the world. The European Union pushed last year for members roughly to triple organic farming by 2030. Influential nonprofits have long promoted organic farming to developing nations, causing fragile countries like Sri Lanka to invest in such methods. In the West, many consumers have been worn over. About half of the population of Germany believes that organic farming can fight global hunger. <laughs> that is almost funny <laughs> if it didn't mean that people were dying in the process. Uh, the rise in food prices, buoyed by increased fertilizer, energy, and transport costs amid the conflict in Ukraine, has exposed inherent flaws in the argument for organic farming. Because organic agriculture shrinks, uh, I'm sorry, shirts many of the scientific advancements that have allowed farmers to increase crop yields, it's inherently less efficient than conventional farming. Research has conclusively shown that organic farming produces less food per acre than conventional agriculture. Moreover, organic farming rotates fields in and out of use more often than conventional farming, which can rely on synthetic fertilizer and pesticides to maintain fertility and keep away pests. Taking this in a lower production in a given field into account, organic farming produces between 29 and 44% less food than conventional methods. It therefore requires as much as 78% more land than conventional agriculture, and the food produced costs 50% more all while generating no measurable increase in human health or animal welfare. And so then it goes on to give way more details uh, about how that exactly takes place and then, you know, points the finger back at Sri Lanka again. And uh, but but I think what's most important on here is, you know, the result will be devastation in the event that this is pushed through and that it becomes the standard. The result will be devastation. Rising fertilizer prices could de decrease rice yields by 10% in the next season, leading to a drop in food production equivalent to what could feed half a billion people. Policymakers and nonprofits must urgently focus on ways to produce more food for the world's poorest at less cost. Genetic engineering, better pest management, and more irrigation would go a long way towards increasing yields. Ramping out the production of artificial fertilizer, as well as considering renovate, uh, removing regulation that makes its fossil fuel inputs more expensive will also help. These simple common sense approaches can curb price hikes, avoid hunger, and even help the environment. Agriculture already uses 40% of the ice-free land on Earth. Increasing its efficiency will allow us to keep more land wild than natural. It's time to let go of this self-indulgent indulgent obsession with organics and focus on scientific and effective approaches that can feed the planet. So this is a pretty hard line uh, opposite to what we hear a lot about organic, uh, organic farming. But, you know, in one of those instances, it's like, well, somebody needed to say it. Uh, even if this, you know, extremism breeds extremism, right? It's the rubber band effect. You know, if you pull the rubber band one far two way, when you let it go, it's going to swing back the other way, right? And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing here. But there's also a, a, an overwhelming significant amount of truth to this as well. Now, that's not to say that all of these things can't be explored in parallel paths, but I kind of feel like up to this point, we have been exploring these in parallel paths, right? The market has seen a greater demand for organic farming, and I think a lot of that is, like he said, the, uh, the, the nonprofits that continue to push this. And now you have organic food producers like Stony, uh, who's it, Stony Bridge or Stony Land or Stony whoever it is. I can't Stony, Stony Field. Field. You know, that is all in D.C. lobbying the hell uh, uh, out of what they do differently to that would make the world better. But what they're not highlighting is exactly what's been highlighted here. And it's the reality that if we lost 10% of rice yields, that we're no longer feeding rice to half a billion people, which is a major, major issue. 500 million people. And think about how many countries there are out there that rely on rice for sustenance, right, as a major part of their calorie consumption. That could be huge and catastrophic. And again, in my opinion, if not the worst way to kill a population is to starve them to death. Right. And, you know, Ryan, you put it out, pulled it out last week that, you know, people will die. And this is, I think the, the ultimate case right here for why uh, we should continue in the direction we're going with modern agriculture and continuing to evolve modern agriculture to be more efficient with land. So we are not watching people die because that is uh, that's against everything that it means to be a human is to, is to watch people die. So. I don't know. Boys, talk to me here. Is this a case of extremism or is this a case of common sense? Uh, you, you know, where, 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 where are we at on the spectrum here with Bjorn? Oh, I, I think it's just putting out the issues that 
also need to be talked about, right? With this ideology, right? So, you know, as we've said on here before, if you subscribe uh, at the fringes of any ideology, it kind of, I think, limits or erodes your credibility. So the answer lies probably somewhere in the middle. And so it's good to see that uh, somebody's putting this out there. I just, you know, again, uh, hopefully with some of the research that comes out of Canada there, other things like that, I think the most important thing is just a path, right? Like, where are we going? What is the low-hanging fruit? And how can you pick this stuff off and uh, continue to level up, um, you know, what we would consider to be conventional agriculture into being, um, you know, more efficient, right? And we're, I think we're going to see that. I think that if there's any bright side to all of this, uh, of what's going on right now is that, you know, uh, however you feel about it, whatever, but, you know, just like with uh, the COVID vaccine, where people came together and, and we had you know uh, companies in the free market basically at warp speed putting something together that never done, been done before. I think this will advance right some of the technology that's been out there for a while. Looking on the sidelines, we talked last week about um, you know some of the um, oh uh, not the micros. What am I thinking of? Anyway, inoculants, inoculants. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a lot of that stuff, right? That's that I think is going to fast forward big time in the free market, and maybe that helps us, maybe it doesn't, but uh, it's definitely happening it at a much higher velocity. It's it, it's happening at a much higher velocity because it has to now. Like we have no choice. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. We, yeah. However, what this to me is his position is pretty moderate. Actually, I think he's pretty moderate in that. He's just laying out certain realities of this hardline organic approach where what I what I see being exposed is where ideology and politics has overruled actual science because nobody pre- previously has said for example you can be organic however this is how, how you have to trade off. Your yields are lower. And he brought up something very important. Your area that you need to have in production can be a lot higher for organic versus conventional agriculture because the fact of the matter is, is that do you all understand the concept of field rotation in organic agriculture. Mm-hmm. Explain mm-hmm. it to us. What that means, listeners. okay? What that means, for example, is imagine you have a field div- that is used to grow one crop for one season. The next year, that field must be taken out of production. It either has to be fallowed or put in a cover crop Mm -hmm. or put into yet another crop for which there may or may not be a demand or, or use for that crop. So this all goes back to my, my principle of not doing a lot of wasted work, not wasting anything. And in this case, in addition to consuming a lot of, land you're also consuming a lot of money doing all of this extra work and and for all this extra yeah and for all this extra work how many more people are you able to feed how many more people are you able to feed because uh less a lot less exactly matt because uh you see I look at the kind of people that are pushing organic only. And, you know, those people, they strike me as people that have never gone through poverty. They've never had to miss meals and they've never had to do without. I mean, they all live, seem to me like they live lives of relative luxury. Because, by the way, Matt, I know what it's like for cupboards and refrigerators to be bare or nearly bare. 
Okay, I know what that's like. And for a lot of these activists and organic people to sit up there and say, ah, you have to be organic. And sorry, yields, you know, are less, uh, variety is less because the other facet or tenant of this organic uh, movement will mean that, did you know that there are going to be large areas of the world that under the principles of the organic lifestyle basically need to be depopulated? Like, for example, I will have to definitely get out of Hawaii because I don't belong here, for example. People living in California, most of them will have to get out of there too because they don't belong there. It, it, you know? it, creates, it creates an interesting situation, and I hope it's something that common sense can prevail, especially here mm -hmm. at home, uh, because, you know, and, and but, but I, I think from a hum humanitarian standpoint, we're all humans at the end of the day, and we should pay attention. We should sympathize. And if we have experience in this space, empathize with these people that are going to have to go through this because um, it is, it's a very real misfortune. And uh, unfortunately, it's a bad thing. Um, in the same vein as uh, uh, nothing we have talked about thus far, uh, but hate is, is abound in a plenty this week. Uh, this is from the AP, and I would say that this is another opinion piece here. Uh, and this is from Julia Rubin. And she says, America's love affair with the lawn is getting messy. Uh, Leanne Ferrara is transforming her small suburban yard from grass bordered by a few shrubs into an anti-lawn, a patchwork of flower beds, vegetables, and fruit trees. It doesn't happen all at once. We started smothering small... Sections of the lawn with cardboard and mulch and then planting them. And by now, the, uh, the front yard is probably three-quarters planting beds. Uh, every year, we do more. Uh, her perennials and native plants uh, require less upkeep, of upkeep in water than turf grass does. And she doesn't need herbicides or pesticides. She's not aiming for emerald perfection. Uh, for generations, the lawn, that neat, green, weedless carpet of grass has dominated American yards. It still does. But a surge of gardeners, landscapers, and homeowners worried about the environment. And I'll see it as anachronism. Anachronism. In a, what, how do you pronounce that? See it as an anachronism, even a threat. Anachronism. Yeah. Uh, life anachronism. for art, <laughs> they're chipping away at it. Uh, America is unique in its fixation on the monoculture lawn. That's not true. Uh, our English inheritance is our own little tidy green space. Now, drought, uh, crashing insect populations, and other environmental problems are highlighting in different ways, different places, the need for more kinds of plants in spaces large and small. Uh, the more you can make your little piece that you're a steward of go with nature slow, the better off everyone is. And it goes on and on and on about you're a crazy person. I'm not, uh, what I'm doing is, is, a, is a benefit. What you're doing is not. And here's the reality. Of the situation is, is that I do wholeheartedly believe that when we talk about landscapes and people's yards, we should be looking at planning more, uh, 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 native plants. I think native plant landscaping should be at the forefront of what's going on. The problem is, is you go into a uh, a nursery right now. How difficult is it to find natives there? Right, you typically have to go to a uh, um, a specialty, which is bizarre. You have to go to a specialty nursery to find native plants, and I think that is unfortunate and bizarre. But at the same time, that does not mean that the lawn should be 100% done away with in favor of going 100% native plants with every available square footage that you have. Uh, when you're talking about diverse ecosystems, they, uh, the, a lawn is going to provide another set of, of living area uh, for the ecosystem. And at the same time, when it comes to filtration, turf grass is one of our great filters uh, when it comes to cooling effects. So there, there are major environmental benefits that come that with with having grass uh in fact if we if we want to talk about probably the the single-handedly most important environmental impact would be the sequestration rate of co2 especially if we're growing c4 plants am i right uh so our warm season grass right. that are growing <laughs> bermuda and zoysia uh, uh you know 
good for you guys because y'all are uh, sequestering carbon at a, at, a, at a much more aggressive rate. Now, that's not to say that some people don't have longer growing season with cool season grass. They might catch up. The math may work out there in the end. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, when we're talking about the rubber band effect, I think this is the rubber band effect in, in maybe not so much our article here by Bjorn being the rubber band effect and this being a true example of the rubber band effect, right? Where it's not like you can't have a little bit of grass. The objective here is to have no grass whatsoever. And in fact, uh, what, what do they, what do they call it here? They now call it an anti-lawn. So if you're having flower beds and vegetables and fruit trees in your yards, that is now called the anti-lawn. Meanwhile, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people in the world that have grass areas, flower beds, vegetables, and fruit trees. Hello. Uh, who is our good friend turf therapy that manages to put a lot of that shit together in a single growing space? That's right. Yeah. Robert Palmer gets the yeah. damn thing done. And he, he draws a whole community of people into that space of being able to do that. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I love that. That is not to say well, he, that I, I think it's, I think it's astronomical to point at it and be like that. The only way is to get rid of your grass and do this. I think it's stupid. This is me off. <laughs> Well, I, I just still go back to, okay, you get rid of the uh, maintained grass areas, all right? Uh, how much do you all like snakes, scorpions, centipedes, and spiders, and ticks? How much do you all like that kind of stuff? Well, they don't like red meat, so they're not worried about getting bit by the tick and never being able to eat red meat again. Isn't that a tick thing? Did I make that up? Yeah, my dream. No, that that that's the no, that is the uh, reaction to a certain certain kind this of a tick bite. On drugs. But even beyond that, Matt, I still see the value of maintained grass to keep living areas uh, relatively safe. Because I want to know how many of these organic advocates would be still be okay if, for example, they had a spider or a centipede in their shoe. I mean, right? We know the answer to this, and and they would mm -hmm. they would probably freak out, and then they would put a post on Facebook about it and how how terrible it was that they had to experience that, and. Uh, or they would be like, oh, my God, I enjoyed it. Look at this beautiful spider I found in my shoe today. And meanwhile, their flesh is rotting off their foot because uh, the, the brown recluse has uh, the type of venom that, that eats flesh. Demay, I'm trying to play middle of the road here and pretend <laughs> like the truth is somewhere in the center, uh, but I'm not doing a very good job at it. Could you, could you maybe clean up my BS here because I'm sounding like a babbling brook? Uh, you know, it... it... We're all going to be zealots for turf grass, right? There's just, it is the way that we are, what we believe in. It's So, yeah, you're going to get a slanted opinion by listening to this, no matter who it is. So, you know, the, the only things I would say is that uh, we're still always, always going to need managed turf grass. I think it's, it's fine that there are areas of the country uh, need to get rid of lawns for a certain reason or another, whether it be water use, right? Um, or other reasons. That. Sure. I, I'm saying like there, there are places, you know, what's a weed, right? A plant at a place. And sometimes turf is not the right plant for that place. That being said, there is, I get, I get 50 no inches of rain a year. Is it, is it mm -hmm. a sin for me to grow grass? No, it, it, no, it's, it's literally the most economical and environmentally conscious, uh, ground cover that you could possibly have, right? Hey. That's it. Now, you're going to say that, well, you know, we need to have prairie grasses and meadow grasses and things like that, and there's a certain, just what Ray said, there's a certain, uh, what do you want to call them, quality of life issues, right, that uh, go into that, yeah. right? So the Hey, son, go uh, ride your bike in the backyard <laughs> through, the, uh, through the forage. And, uh, boy, watch out for sneaks. <laughs> yeah, if you get uh, bit, right, don't watch call it. me, you sissy. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. Watch out for by the way. Yeah, watch watch out for sneaks. Uh, or else, 
I also, you know, am the advocate for grass in the right place. Okay, yeah. I, I believe in that too. I mean, uh, because for example, you know me and how I don't like grass on steep grades. A lawn doesn't belong on a forty-five degree grade. Uh, Demay, <laughs> I want to throw the football in the backyard with my son, but I planted a uh, broom sedge back there, and uh, it's it's approximately <laughs> twenty-eight. I'm having trouble getting from one end of my half acre backyard to the other half end of the half acre backyard. Well, um, you know what? Here's the, here's the thing: is Nick can go out there and play in shorts with no socks and no shoes, and then you douse them in rubbing alcohol after to toughen them up for football tryouts. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... See, that that is actually one way to make a man out of a boy. And you know who's going to make a man out of a boy tonight? That's going to be our Joe Knows Turf segment. Gentlemen, let's check this out. <laughs> Joe Knows Turf! <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe. I'm going to give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today. Because Joe Knows Turf! <laughs> That's right. Joe, D- Joe does no turf. And uh, Demay, how about how about you kick us off here? Let's 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 learn what Joe knows today. Well, OK, listen, uh, I'm going to preface this by giving our normal disclaimer that this is in no way, shape or form personal. This is to uh, take what is being put out yes, there into the wide open world. And hey, I'm saying what I believe. Uh, <laughs> I was just um, I was being facetious. Okay, so Hyperbole. that being said, do not get butt hurt. Uh, all we're trying to do is put a spin on it that provides the proper context, right? Because I think a lot of times when people are giving advice, right, and we try not to be guilty of it, but we're only a product of our own experiences, and I get that, right? You got to meet people where they are. So, and a lot of times the advice comes out, and it's literally generated from one person's lawn that they've only had experience with and they can't project that out into being, okay, hey, somebody else's situation, location, geography, grass type, soil type, uh, their general knowledge, their equipment, whatever, might be just a tad bit different. And you got to take all that into account when you make uh, statements. And uh, listen, this is to help everybody. Uh, what's what's the, Hey, listen, Ray, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to help you get good. And sometimes that's going to hurt. So exactly. Without further, exactly. without further ado, uh, this one was sent in to us uh, just I think this morning actually. Yeah. So this uh, this was sent in and asked to say, hey, what do you guys think about this? And are there some statements made here that you could add some context to? And so that's what we're going to try to provide here, and we're going to do it through uh, our Lord and Savior, uh, Joe the Lawn Warrior. So <laughs> let's launch this. Environmentally responsible in my lawn. Well, I'm just not throwing every chemical out there on it when something bad goes wrong. Pause. I like this guy's accent. He sounds like me. (laughs) All right. So uh, this is uh, the, the, the title of this is you don't need these three products to have healthy green grass. Basic lawn care tips on a budget. Fantastic video title. I'm already enthralled because I'd like to hear you know what this gentleman has to say. The opening statement there, very good. That's good to hear because I I would agree that that's a huge problem, right, that takes place, that people see something that goes wrong and immediately, what do I need to spray, spread, or do to fix this? And Ray, as you've learned over a period of time, right, a lot of times that's just wait and see and or figure out what the hell you actually have going on before you do anything. Yeah. So yeah, let's find listen out. here and see what Last video, rarely use any herbicides. Aside my, from my pre-emergent, post-emergent herbicides, hardly use them at all, okay? So that leads us into three products that I do not use on my lawn no matter what. And the first one that I got hit with after last week's video is, well, what about fungicides? Do you try to prevent them? Do you cure them after they set in place? And the answer to the, both of those questions is no. I do nothing about them. I have used a fungicide one time as an experiment to see if I could help control my spring dead spot. So I applied that in the fall to limit damage in the spring. 
didn't really do a whole lot despite thinking it did. So I will likely never do that again. And I know this topic is a little bit easier for me to talk about because I have Bermuda grass and it grows by rhizomes and stolons and it grows so quickly that it repairs oh, itself my goodness. so fast. So if you don't have a warm season grass that grows as quickly as this Bermuda does, then maybe a lot of this won't apply to you. I'm just telling you about how I approach fungus in the lawn. Typically, I will deal with dollar spot or brown patch or the spring dead spot, just like some of you possibly have in the past. And usually that will arise from too much moisture, too much rain. And my solution to taking care of them is just let those environmental conditions, the rain and the moisture be eliminated from the lawn. If that means letting it dry out after all the rain has passed, even to a point where it's really dry. And then I just pick back up on my cultural practices of regular mowing. Pause. Now, first, I want to highlight this is we're not always here to give you the bad, right? There's some good here. What he said there about fungicides, absolutely true. You don't need to use them. And a lot of times, one of the best things you can do is dry that stuff down. Now, Jay Pink, I'd like you to roll back here for me to just before two minutes, about one minute, 58 seconds. That I use and think I need, and everybody said, well, what about this? And what about that? So I want to address one thing first. I hear a lot from the soil test purists that if you're not doing a soil test, then you are potentially harming the environment by throwing too much on your lawn, particularly phosphorus in fertilizers. Well, here's how I respond to that. Fertilizer and phosphorus is not the only thing in lawn care hurting our environment. There are so many other things doing just as much or possibly more damage. So how am I environmentally responsible in my lawn? Well, I'm just not throwing every chemical out there on it. Pause. Some hmm. Pause. So, I'm not sure that I agree at all with anything that was just said there. Uh, no. It, it just, no. I, where I was like, hey, I kind of like a guy here. I went back and I was like, oh, buddy, buddy. You, you can't say that to start, and I didn't want to start with that. I wanted to show that, hey, like the guy actually, he's trying to pro put some good information out there, and there is some good information. However, he has a point. To he has a point. Thumb, to thumb your nose and say, well, hey, I don't really care what I put down because, well, I don't need those stinking soil tests because I know better than the soil test. And, you know, we're not going to go into it right now. If you do watch um, the other video that he references in this, and I don't think we went through that clip where he's talking about it, but. Uh, he, he did a, pro, a a video where he talked about the four products that he does like to use, and he is applying phosphorus phosphorus with almost every app in this program. So mm -hmm. again, that might work here, but if you're in Michigan and you have high pea soils, or if you're in another location that has a phosphorus ban or something else, again, it's just some nuance there. I understand that you can't this guy can't provide all that kind of clarification in one eight minute video it's impossible i agree with that but it's a it's a 43 minute video like but this. it's worth the effort in my opinion <laughs> if anybody's ever right. watched a, a grass factor video knows that it it you know what starts as a 10 minute idea turns into a 45 minute meta analysis because you have to cover all your bases yeah all right so there's one more to about five minutes and 25 seconds. That is an insecticide or pesticide, whatever you want to call it. Oh, I have Lord never have mercy. used something to kill hey! or to prevent them. Pause. Can we just real quick that there is a hierarchy of the sides, right? And at the top of the food chain is pesticide. Pesticide encompasses. It is all encompassing of Fungicides, rodenticides, nematicides, herbicides, they all fall, insecticides, they all fall under pesticide. There is. If you're, if you're trying to kill a slug, it's also molluscicide, too. Molluscicide. <laughs> yes. A mollusk, that's right. The, mm -hmm. All of these fall under the umbrella term pesticide. Can we please stop calling insecticides? pesticides as if they're synonymous with one another they're 
all all insecticides are pesticides. Not all pesticides are insecticides. This is basic 101 level shit here. Can we can we just fix that one thing? Go ahead. Have I dealt with a pest problem? Absolutely. Last summer, I dealt with a major pest problem when army worms completely destroyed my lawn. I know why that happened, too, because I completely got away from the cultural practices that we just mentioned. What? Bullshit. Bullshit. And I didn't do anything in the lawn for quite some time. Lie. Properly manicured, properly cared for lawn, those cultural practices deter pests from wanting to come into your lawn. (laughs) They deter fungus from setting in. So. If you're taking care of the lawn and giving it Sir, everything... Sir, doo-doo is falling out of your mouth right now. Well, doo-doo is falling out of your mouth. <laughs> I'm going to be the voice of reason. I Again, I maybe he's oversimplifying. I don't know. I don't know the guy's motives. I'm just going to say this, is that the reason that, that it, it wasn't that you were too busy, it wasn't that you know you did something wrong, it's literally that you didn't prevent it. They showed it. up. With a, with a chemical, and yeah, the life cycle of the pest is such that mm-hmm. they were going to get in there. and Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, again, this is a learning exercise. That's the way I view this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll play that for a few more seconds here. I want to see. I can't remember if he said something Eats else here. Your lawn will not become desirable for those pests to set up shop in, in particular the army worms like I dealt with last year. That's and if true. you can... Kind of look for the warning signs. I noticed the warning signs up underneath my sunshade awnings. I started seeing the eggs showing up, and I would see them on my grill cover as well. If you notice those, you know a problem might be coming. So if you are someone that wants to treat, you can go ahead and treat them to prevent them or to uh, kill them if they've already started taking care of their damage. But for me, I just let nature run its course just like with a fungus. And if I can keep that soil moist, the lawn mowed, and everything else working the way it should, then those pests should not find a comfy place in my lawn and they'll be taken care of before I know it. Because every other summer before, I noticed those same warning signs in advance, but I was so uh, persistent and so uh, consistent with my okay. cultural practice. Okay. Is, he, is, he, is, is there, is there going to be any more enlightening moments here? Look, here's the reality yeah. of the situation is, is that, and I, I'm a big fan. If I have Bermuda grass, do you have to run out there and treat for it? No, absolutely not. I, you know, I've, I've dealt with army worms long enough living in the South that if you don't treat for it and they come through at a pretty decent time, you're going to be all right. If you've got tall fescue, you got Kentucky bluegrass, you got pretty ryegrass and they come eating, eh, chances are you're going to have to do some pretty significant seeding to, to get all that to come back to uh, equilibrium, right? Uh, but in a Bermuda grass, you're much more forgiving. And I think a major thing that he he left over here and should have been reiterated was the fact that he has Bermuda grass and this works for him and him alone. And uh, and so he can get away with it. But as far as the three things you don't need in your lawn, it doesn't necessarily always align apples to apples. And uh, and uh, again, back to this phosphorus thing, to pretend like phosphorus is not an issue is uh, selling it short because that is why all eyes are on agriculture and lawn care right now. Uh, it's not just the chemical component. It is also the phosphorus component. And so is as important as ever to be uh, 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 that whatever decision you make out in, the, I'll give you an example. My dad taught me one time, uh, and my, my dad's an engineer, and he said, if anyone ever questions your decision, you show them the data. You kick their ass with the data. Same thing. So if you are ever questioned about your application decision, whether that be an insecticide, a, a pesticide, or uh, fertility, uh, you can kick their ass with the data, and that is part of the benefit of having a, uh, a metric like a soil test. So um, thanks, Budget Lawns. Thank you, Demay, for bringing that to our attention, and, uh, and may you uh, continue along in your lawn care quest uh, a little bit more astute than just San Francisco Gate articles and, and whatever you found on GeoCities in uh, 2002. Um, gentlemen, this week we are brought to you by our sponsors. Uh, shout out to all of our sponsors. In fact, last night they were voting for um, 
the next movie that I will have to watch as we continue to reintegrate me back into society. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a struggle. I don't know. Um, I don't know how I feel about it yet. Uh, we watched Step Brothers, and it was, it, was, it was a struggle. But I will say, by the way, shout out to Telly Coleman, ltktrucking.com, by the way, another show sponsor, um, sent me a bottle of, of, uh, of, I believe it was a Yellowstone. I think it's a Yellowstone bourbon. And, I, and after about my third Yellowstone bourbon, I, I, I laughed <laughs> at the movie. And to be, to be fair, it's probably the first time I've laughed at a movie since uh, I saw bits and pieces of uh, old school back in the, uh, back in the day. So. Um, you know, you're a destroyed I'm, I'm, human being. I I am. I'm a. I kicked it off at the start of the show that I'm a terrible human being, and you know it is what it is. But um, it is is something to be talked about. Uh, boys, let's catch this shit on fire and check out this week's burns. Yeah, uh, Sh- Sheila is celebrating Mother's Day like none other. Uh, what do you think? She had red lobster tonight. Is she at red lobster eating on the shrimp? Do you think? Well, I just think she tastes like a cheddar bay biscuit. I'm not sure if she's actually eating it. But <laughs> Definitely will leave you greasy like a uh, like a cheddar biscuit. That is for sure. Give me that lobster. Uh, you bit. just you can't you can't no matter the amount of soap you use, you just can't get that filth off your hands. Um. The pesticide cleanup finished at 150-acre North Star development. For three years, thousands of truckloads of pesticide-contaminated soil wound their way through the Kaiser neighborhoods from a proposed development on Kale Street Northeast to a farm six miles away. Now an environmental cleanup of 150-acre North Star neighborhood is complete, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality has determined. Neighbors and government agencies raised alarms when developers proposed the project in 2017. The soil was contaminated with Dieldrin, a breakdown product of the insecticide Aldrin, which was banned from crop use in 1970. It persists in soils for years and can accumulate up the food chain. The contamination, the contamination exceeded DEQ's standard for residential areas, but was considered safe for farm use. Opponents said that the plan had potential to spread contaminated dust from the trucks, which had passed three schools on route to the farm. They also worried that once at the farm, where it would be used to fill two former quarry pits, it could contaminate groundwater and surface water. In response, DEC required the developer to use dust control measures and required the farmer to cover the contaminated soil with three feet of clean fill. Uh, Nicole Tarter, a neighborhood watch leader who lives near the truck route, said concern died down after the project began. The developer, INE Construction in Wilsonville, asked the Statesman Journal to email questions about the project but did not answer them. I think new neighbors are unaware and ones that have been here a while aren't as concerned now that the dust has settled quite literally. Cleanup construction of the development with 500 homes plus duplexes and apartments have been completed in phases. The site is at Gale Street. Uh, the developer was allowed to begin building on the eastern portion of the property in 2018 after excavating and temporarily stockpiled 55,000 cubic yards of contaminated soil in the western part of the site. In 2019, development began on the western part of the site with another 47,000 cubic yards of contaminated soil was added to the stockpile. Tech allowed the, de- the developer to use about 25,000 cubic yards of soil with lower contamination level- levels from the western portion of structural fill in the area where the apartments could be concluded. So it goes on and on and on. It's a, a and it was it was a big big deal. This is a massive massive amount of dirt that was uh, being moved here. And uh, now I'm not familiar with Dildrin or Aldrin. Uh, Ray, I know this is all in your area of expertise. What the hell are these products? Okay, Dildrin and Aldrin were widely used in the United States up until, I believe, 1970. And that is when Dildrin and Aldrin were banned for general use and restricted to use only as a termiticide underneath structures. Because, by the way, here in Hawaii, a common contaminant of soil in residential areas is dieldrin, eldrin, or chloridine. And that is because up until the 1980s, those three insecticides were widely used for control of termites. And those are considered forever chemicals because once it's out in the environment, it basically has a half-life of decades, if not a century. So uh, my question no is, good. 
Yeah, bad. And here's one more little thing to consider. If there's that type of chemistry contained in the soil, there is an issue of plants and crops uptaking that chemical from the soil and then translocating it into its tissues. So I would not suggest, for example, that people make their own vegetable gardens in that neighborhood. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, I'm, uh... I'm just saying. I'm I'm just saying because uh, I still remember, like even my father, telling me, "Yeah, you don't want a vegetable garden around your house. Not here in Hawaii. You don't want that." Demay, if this was in Ohio. <laughs> Does this happen in Ohio? I guess I don't know. I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I've never seen anything like this in Tennessee. There was a uh, funny that you mentioned this. So there was a uh, a park here that was partially on the site of an old fertilizer plant here in town, mm -hmm. and it was the mm -hmm. home of a bunch of soccer fields, playgrounds, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, they had a they were doing a, some other type of environmental impact study for something they were going to build, and found out holy shit, like there is some horrific stuff on this site and it ended up that the entire park about uh oh boy uh maybe 18 or so acres uh completely stripped ray four feet five mm -hmm. feet down all that stuff trucked out all new fill brought in line in there all kinds of stuff and you know they started pulling all the houses around the park and people were sick and there was histories of illness of people that had left there it was it was a bad deal so, um, yeah, the answer is, uh, you know, uh, or do you want to buy a house there? Uh, no, I'm going to go ahead and pass. It's a, yeah. it's a tough, and this is one of those scenarios, you know, where, uh, you know, we, are we turf grass purists at heart? Yes. Um, are we turf grass elitist? Yes, um, and probably more so just me because I'm a terrible human. But uh, you know this this sh this cannot go on. Like this is this is a bad thing, and uh, and I'm glad it was corrected and the cleanup took place because uh, you, you know just as 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 we can be so uh, positive or or pro turf grass at the same time, we can be sensible human beings. We're assholes, not scumbags. Um, the two largest reservoirs in California are already at critical low levels, and mm -hmm. the dry season is just starting. Against the backdrop of a water crisis in the Colorado River Basin, where the county's, uh, the country's largest reservoirs are plunging at an alarming rate, California's two largest reservoirs, the Shasta Lake and Lake Oroville, are facing a similar struggle. Uh, years of low rainfall and snowpack and more intense heat waves have fed directly to the state's multi-year unrelenting drought conditions rapidly draining statewide reservoirs. And according to this week's report from the U.S. Drought Monitor, the two major reservoirs are at critically low levels to the point of the year where they should be the highest. This week, Shasta Lake is only at 40% of its total capacity, the lowest it has ever been at the start of May since record-keeping began in 1977. Meanwhile, further south, Lake Oroville is at 55% of its capacity, which is 70% of where it should be around this time on average. Shasta Lake is the largest reservoir in the state the, in the cornerstone of California's Central Valley Project, a complex water system made of 19 dams and reservoirs, as well as more than 500 miles of canals stretching from Reddington to the north all the way south to the drought-stricken landscapes of Bakersfield. Uh, and it goes on here um, to talk about how much of a bad thing this is. But, you know, when we're talking about California and the drought that's taking place there, there's nothing about that that is good. It is 100% a bad thing. And the fact that we're kicking off the year right now, right? So where they're relying on a lot of this, of this water replenishment in their uh, reservoirs to come from snow, uh, snow melt, and it's not there. Uh, this is not good. I mean, we're at 40% capacity right now. Now it might explain the article and I may have missed it, but uh, you know, what is a realistic look for the remainder of this year as far as, how many, how many, uh, how many more years at this kind of capacity can we continue to go? How many months even can we continue to go? Are we down to counting months? Are we counting weeks at this point? You know, it's bad. It's a bad deal. Yeah, it's bad all the way around. And again, this is where, uh, you know, all turf grass 
managers, you know, if, you, if you're just looking at that part of it, right, are going to be in extreme duress. And, you know, yeah, there's there's reasons why and reasons why not that they should be allowed or able to irrigate, you know, given the assets they're maintaining and things like that. But it's going to get to the point where there ain't a whole lot that they're able to do. And so, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's discouraging to see this, and especially given the agriculture needs of the state, right, and what they produce, uh, that's, that's a huge critical component of it too. So, mm-hmm. Uh, not, not, mm. not, not looking great. Definitely a burn. Not, yeah, this is, uh, this is all bad. And, uh, climate wise, I can give you all a glimpse or a picture of what's going on in the Western half of the United States, uh, and the Pacific ocean, including Hawaii. Can you see a very dry pattern that has, uh, taken hold and when i say pattern i'm talking multi-year drought you know i'm seeing that a multi-year drought i mean i i'm also sitting tight too because other than the last two weeks i have not had very much rain here in hawaii Okay, I have not had that much rain. And, and it, what what happens in Hawaii then translates over to California because whatever weather systems hit Hawaii tend to move towards California. That's just the, the, the climate and the weather. Well, I certainly hope there's some sort of, of relief somewhere because uh i mean they it, 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 that can affect so much of the rest of the united states that it's uh it's truly a bad thing um our returns this week are thin but boy are they quality In the running for my favorite article of the year, it can be summarized by one (laughs) glorious headline here. Naked middle Georgia man tackled woman off lawnmower before her husband shot him, deputy said. Welcome to America. The Bibb County Sheriff's Office said a man was shot and killed when he attacked a woman seemingly unprovoked and naked. Deputy said the 25-year-old man died from a gunshot wound after he allegedly tackled a 67-year-old woman off a riding lawnmower. It happened Thursday afternoon at Trophy Place near Lazella. Deputy said the woman's 66-year-old husband shot the naked attacker when the husband tried to pull him off his wife when the suspect attacked the woman again. The woman was hospitalized but is listed in stable condition. The husband had minor, minor injuries and was treated at the scene. Deputies responded around 5 p.m. and found the, naked, the man naked with a gunshot wound to his chest. Investigators didn't mention any charges related to the incident. Uh, kudos to this 66-year-old uh, man taking care of his 67-year-old lady on uh, on uh, uh, Mother's Day. Well, it didn't exactly occur on Mother's Day. N- but the day before, nice shooting, Mother's sir. you damn right. Nice shooting, You're sir. you damn right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because let me tell you right now, if there was a naked guy that was attacking my wife off, off the riding lawnmower in the, in the yard. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Matt. <laughs> Voice exactly. of reason. Yeah. Demay. It's, un- it's unfortunate that this happened, but uh, you know, I think this guy just probably watched a long, wrong, uh, long YouTube video and should have tried to uh, apply that PCP to the lawn through a hose and sprayer instead of uh, his own body. So, you know, <laughs> bleeding out on the lawn well, was not the way that we intended to have that applied, sir. But well, meth. Uh, each is a drug. Meth. meth is a heck I'm of a I'm, drug, Matt. I'm meth. thinking some angel yeah. dust or maybe some bath salts. I don't know. Are you sure it's a combination of both? If I had to guess, this guy was willing to consume any and everything, including lead to the chest. Um, <laughs> ah. What about this week's mailbag? We got some good You've stuff got here. Mail. Oh, we do have mail, as a matter of fact. Uh, oh, the first one here is from one of our patrons, Peter. Peter said, just got my soil test back today. I got a pH of 8 and low P. Uh, planning on applying sulfur to help lower pH and then using AMS and triple 19 for my primary fert. Also included co-ops products that I have access to. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're definitely low P and, uh, he's talking about using AMS and triple 19. Yeah. You could get away with a couple apps of triple 19 and then rely on AMS. 
And uh, elemental sulfur would be your friend. I would also add citric acid to the uh, to the equation there. And you can go back and watch our Thirsty Thursday episode with Aldo. There's also a great video by Ben the Lawn Guardian where he talked about using it to make some big moves on his pH as well. And I, I think you're good to go. As far as anything from the co-op here, I looked at it and uh, I don't see anything that they are offering that is going to be uh, better or applicable to your situation beyond what you're already doing. Um, the important thing is that you're doing what you need and not necessarily what you want or what you're being sold. Uh, so this triple 19 poly bag at a, of a sale price of $27 90 cents, uh, do the damn thing and uh, grow you some grass boys. Am I out of line there? Or is that, that sounded pretty, pretty dosh gone good. No, I, I think you can be pretty successful there. Uh, you know, dropping the pH down is going to help. Pretty help. You know, I'd say stick with the basics. Don't get yourself too caught up on the, uh, you know, going too hard in the paint unless you want to on the pH thing. And then uh, see where the chips fall here for next year. Just start working on that uh, that P situation, getting your end right. Go from there. Get your end right, he said. Uh, and then our next one is from Frank here. Frank said, I live in Illinois with tall fescue. And I'm looking for some general guidance based on my soil report from Logan Labs. Front and side yard, last application was in November of 2021. was bag rated screaming green. Thanks. Uh, and we're taking a look at it here. Uh, what we have is uh, we have a, a, a decent level of potassium. Uh, we are low in sulfur. Uh, we are high in phosphorus. And uh, everything else looks to be good. So what I would be doing, uh, oh, wait, where's the pH? It's 7.5. So I would be on an ammonium sulfate program is the only thing mm-hmm. I would be applying to your lawn. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't and, get carried uh, away with yep. any sulfur or anything like that. You know, you, they no. got a little bit of light. Be all right. Just stick with the ammonium sulfate. Yeah, looks, looks yeah, good to me. Keep it simple. Pretty, pretty, pretty simple, simple, pretty cheap program, as a matter of fact, there, too. Uh, Frank is uh, well, the old relative sulfate. sulfate. Yeah, I guess you know if you're, you know, urea is a little bit cheaper, but <laughs> it's cheaper than Screaming Green, that's for sure. And uh, and the beauty of it is, is that you never have to apply Screaming Green ever again. Uh, gentlemen, that is going to wrap up our show today. I want to thank you all for hanging out for the time we did. Uh, Thursday we've got uh, Jesse Wood on Thirsty Thursday, and then after Wood, that there is an H in there. <laughs> And uh, and then after that, we're going to be doing a live call-in show. Oh, and off the air, we got to talk about uh, one of our friends, Matix, is moving to America, Tejas, as a matter of fact. And uh, and he wants us to uh, take a look at, at what he's going to be doing down there because he is a Canadian who is uh, getting his first taste of America right in the good old Texas. So uh, it should be it's fun. Like Crocodile Dundee up. comes south instead of north. It's going <laughs> to be, be fucking weird. <laughs> straight to texas uh put a, don't mess think i'm gonna be texas. outback first thing no, there's a, yeah. no. No. all right natix tells, tells doesn't me that leave a, your hands Demay. yeah natix tells me that the first thing he's uh gonna do when he gets to texas oh. is uh get his gun permit yeah just like a good american there isn't he when in doubt oh, yeah. shoot and, it out <laughs> Sheila, you're looking a little congealed. I'm getting Randy. Yeah, well, right. that's because the guy tackled her off a mower earlier this week, and uh, you know, her boyfriend wasn't there <laughs> to shoot the perpetrator. All right, we're gonna go let our patrons choose the title of this week's episode. We'll catch y'all on Thursday. <laughs>